All right, all screws loose podcast listeners. You wanted the best. You got the best. The hottest band in the world. Kiss. God, right about now, I wish I had permission to use Kiss's music on this podcast because I think the beginning of Detroit Rock City would go perfect after that intro. And if you're not familiar with that intro, that is the intro that Kiss uses before they hit the stage during their live sh- for their live shows. That whole, you wanted the best, you got the best. That experience is, is top tier. It's something else. Uh, I've been a Kiss fan my entire life, and I was in my mid-20s when I finally got to see them. Uh, so my love for Kiss building up all those years, finally getting to see it live, that experience was just over the top. And I encourage you guys, if you love music, go see some live shows. It doesn't have to be Kiss, obviously, but whoever it is, go experience it. Go listen to some live music. Have some fun. Um, just go and have a good time. And guys, I just want to thank each and every one of you for making the first episode such a success. I had so much fun making it. I had so much fun releasing it and watching you guys' reaction. And then getting to talk to some of you guys uh, some of you guys reaching out on Facebook Messenger, uh, texting and just talking to me in person. Guys, I really appreciate your support and your love. Um, I want to continue to put this put this podcast together for you guys. And I just want to continue to have fun and make sure that you guys are enjoying yourselves. Without further ado, though, let's go ahead and get this second episode started. Guys, welcome to episode two of All Screws Loose Thoughts Unhinged. Guys, I'm so glad to have you back for a second week. I hope to continue to do this weekly thing and continue to release episodes every Monday with some surprise and emergency episodes in between. Because the more things go on, the more things happen in the world of music, movies, TV, video games, and sports. Uh, the more things happen live, I'd like to make a few episodes about it. I think I talked about it in the first episode. You know, we have baseball season starting. Uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs are going to be starting here in about a month or two. Uh, when we get to the summertime, we have some football stuff. Uh, the NBA playoffs are going to start here soon. Um, so as things happen, um, maybe we could have a couple short episodes to, to talk about some live topics with you guys. I hope you guys would enjoy that. But getting back on topic with today's episode, we're gonna be talking about Kiss. I'm gonna go over the brief. I'm gonna go over a, a good history of the band, some of the things that stick out for me. We're gonna cover the albums as they come out in chronological order. I'm gonna tell you about my favorite songs. If the album to me was a flop, because Kiss isn't perfect. I love their music, but they've had some they've had some rough albums, and there's some songs that that just don't really fit the bill. Uh, so we're going to go through that, and as we go through these in chronological order, I'll kind of talk about what was going on with the band at that time, and then we're going to get to where we are currently. These guys are, are less than a year short of, of performing for 50 years. 50 years. Can you imagine being with people, with the same people for 50 years? Now I know two of the members, two of the original members aren't, aren't with them anymore. But, I mean, Paul and Gene, 
uh, have been together since day one of this thing. And what a lot of people may not know about those two, those two don't always see eye to eye. And sometimes their personalities are conflicting with each other. And I've been reading Paul Stanley's, uh, Paul Stanley's book, uh, Face the Music, A Life Exposed. I've been reading it again recently, and he makes it, Paul makes it very apparent from the very beginning, you know, his thoughts and his feelings towards Gene weren't the best. He thought Gene was condescending to Paul and, and how uh, Gene viewed Paul as a musician. And sometimes if you watch some of their, uh, some of their interviews together on YouTube, um, there's one in particular I think this is during the revenge era. This is 1990, early 1990s. Uh, Gene, <laughs> Gene tells the uh, tells the camera, "Can we stop recording?" Because and then he thinks they stop recording. And he looks over at Paul and he's like, "Why do you, Why do you have to talk to me that way?" But anyways, so they have they have some of these conflicting personalities, but yet they stuck together for 50 years, made a shit ton of money, and have still continued to put on one hell of a show to this day and I have seen the band live twice I saw them on the freedom to rock tour in 2016 so I was living in Stephenville at the time and I was still going to school at Tarleton and uh, they had announced the tour and I think the tickets the pre-sales started in March and the closest that they were to my area there in Stephenville or in Texas in general was in Wichita, Kansas, and it was, uh, I think the date was July 25th. Not that it's, not that seeing Kiss is important to me, because I don't remember the exact date, year, and time that I saw them. <laughs> uh, so I, I ended up buying the tickets, um, and it's Kiss, so the tickets aren't cheap, but it, I had been waiting my whole life to see these guys live, so uh, I was willing to spend just about anything. It's a good thing that I, I had already gotten married, paid for my wedding, because I may have, I may have spent everything I had on on tickets rather than, uh, <laughs> rather than uh, wedding venue and a honeymoon. Um, but yeah, so we had to the first time we saw them, we drove uh, from Stephenville. Actually, we drove from Abilene because we had to uh, drop our two dogs off at my parents' house here in Abilene, and then we drove from Abilene to Wichita, Kansas, which I want to say was somewhere between a. 10 and 15 hour drive um well worth it i'm not the biggest fan of oklahoma so that those couple hours that we were driving through oklahoma for some reason i was just miserable and it was like as soon as we crossed the red river you know i went from all smiles to just like oh this fucking place and then as soon as we cross over to the kansas state line it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders I was like oh i'm back okay um the demons have been released uh, but, you know, being in the car for, you know, over 10 hours with the same person sometimes isn't, uh, isn't the easiest thing. Uh, so me and my wife were driving. I did, I did all the driving, uh, but she is, uh, this is where the joke between me and her came that she was, uh, she was my donkey and I was Shrek. Not that she's a jackass. She came up with the joke, not me. So everyone chill the fuck out. Uh, but she just kept going and talking and talking. And for the first, you know, five or six hours, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a response to everything. I was paying attention. And then after about hour six, you know, I was kind of wanting to listen to all my kids songs I have on my phone. And she just kept going. And it was literally like donkey, you know, and he's like, 
And then I had some magic berries, and then he puts his hand over his mouth, and he's still talking through his hand. He releases his hand from his mouth, and he's still talking. That's literally what it was like. <laughs> but we got through it. We made it to Wichita, Kansas, and saw the show. Uh, ended up ended up seeing a pretty good opening act. Uh, the opening act was Caleb Johnson, who ended up winning. Either he won or he was a runner-up on American Idol a couple years prior to this. And he he covered a few of Kiss's songs during his American Idol performances. Um, he did a he did a pretty damn good job performing. He has a damn good voice, and that thing just fills fills the arena. Uh, so if you guys haven't checked out Caleb Johnson, if you're a, if you're into rock or even a pop or hip hop fan, I think uh, you should check him out. He's he, he's he's got some pretty good stuff out there. Uh, even some country fans, I think I could see some country fans really dig on, on Caleb Johnson. Um, and then the second time we saw Kiss was just a few months afterwards. They were performing a, a single show at the Windstar Casino there in Thackerville, Oklahoma. Once again, there I go loving Kiss so much, I'll go to fucking Oklahoma to see them. Twice. <laughs> But there was uh, there was no opening act for that show, um, and I actually had no idea that Winstar had had a little—it's not really an arena—a little hall that can host concerts. And I can't—I couldn't really wrap my mind around before I saw the show. I couldn't think that Kiss could perform in one of these halls, but but they did, and it was a really damn good show. Um, so during this show, a couple of things that stand out for me when I was in the crowd. One one thing was I saw his family, and it was a is a mom and a dad, and they had this kid was probably somewhere between seven and ten years old. They brought their seven and ten year old, and this is in the middle of the show. You know, the music had already started. Everyone was up. Everyone's hooping and hollering, and I look over to my left, and the mom and dad are into the show. They're singing. They're jumping. Their hands in the air. And they're trying to get their kid into the music, and he's got his iPad and his headphones on. He's not even looking up. He could care less where the hell he was. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, they just paid all this money for this kid to have a ticket. I'll be fucking damned if my kid's not enjoying and rocking out to some kiss when I brought him up here and spent all this money. But that was before I had kids. Now I can almost semi-understand. Sometimes these kids can be something else um but the second thing i i remember i can't remember what point of the show it was but someone someone had lit up had lit up something pretty good and it was very potent and in me being the fan that i am i'm jumping around all 250 pounds of me is jumping around singing and singing and dancing and and throwing my hands in the air so i'm huffing and puffing i'm sweating and, and I'm, I'm breathing hard and I, I was breathing in all the smoke, and I'm pretty sure I got me a second-hand high because after the show, uh, me and Danny drove back to to the hotel, and we stopped at an IHOP on the way. And I, I just I can't remember ever being that hungry. You know, I had finished my plate, and I was like, damn, man, I don't feel like I haven't eaten shit. And Danny was kind of – she was done with her. She was just kind of picking at it, and so I didn't even ask her. And I, and I ate her plate, and I just remember thinking, like, Fuck man, I could I could order some more damn pancakes and I could eat. And that's when it hit me. Yeah, I think I got a second hand high from this. 
But uh, I want to go ahead and move on to the two most important things that make Kiss so influential to me. Um, the first one was uh, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with my Uncle Paul. Uh, he was he just helped take care of us as kids, and he was there to help raise us uh, when my parents were at work, uh, after we got out of school. And Paul was the biggest Kiss fan that I've ever seen, even bigger than me. He loved Kiss. He loved everything they stood for. You'd walk into his room, and he had all the action figures, all the memorabilia. Uh, he owned so many records, so many CDs, cassettes, movies. Uh, and so since I spent a lot of time with him, Paul, Paul was very important to me. Uh, unfortunately, Paul's no longer with us. He passed away in December of 2021. And so it's very important for me to make this episode because it means so much to me. This band means so much to me because of how important it was to my Uncle Paul. Um, also, I love Kiss so much that I named my kid after one of the members. <laughs> the original guitarist is Ace Freely. Uh, when I first pitched to my wife, uh, before, this was actually before she got pregnant. We were trying to pick up a kid name after we got married if she ever got pregnant. And I had I had always dreamed that I wanted to name my kid after Ace Freely. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, you know, it's a good thing for me, I, I guess, to not name him Ace because we already had a dog at the time named Ace. But I had pitched to her the name Freely. And at first she was like, she, was, she wasn't having any of it. She didn't like it. She didn't think it was a good name. But eventually she came around, thank God, because when I look at Freely, he doesn't look like a, he definitely doesn't look like a Jose, and I definitely will never burden anyone on this planet with the name Jose. Uh, so she finally agreed that, you know, if we ever had a kid, whether it was a boy or girl, we would name it Freely. So we ended up buying this kiss onesie that we saw at a Target one day, and this was way years before she was even pregnant. So we kept this onesie with us in our closet everywhere we went. So we had started off an apartment, went to a duplex, and then eventually when we moved back to Abilene, um, that onesie followed us, and we just kept it in our closet. And I just remember how special it was to take it to the hospital when he was born and to put it on him, even though it was a zero to three month, and he was the most tiniest baby I've ever seen when he was born. Um, but it was just so special to see Freely in that kiss onesie. Uh, when he was first born. So enough about my personal stories in the band, you know. We're not here to listen to Jose talk about his shit. We're here to learn about Kiss, damn it. We're here to learn about what makes them the hottest band in the world. So the band Kiss, it's originally formed in 1970 by a man named Stanley Eisen. Now, those of you who don't know, those of you who aren't KISS fans and don't read every fucking thing they put out like me, Stanley Eisen is Paul Stanley's birth name. Later, he changed his name to Paul Stanley. And he formed this band with a man named Gene Klein, which I think everyone knows later becomes Gene Simmons. But Gene Klein's birth name is not Gene Klein. He had already changed it once before to this. Gene Klein changed his name from, and I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, if if there's anyone that's Jewish, 
listening to this podcast and they take offense to how I pronounce this, I do apologize. I don't mean anything by it. It's just pure ignorance. I believe it is pronounced Keim Wheats. That is Gene Klein's birth name. Um, but they formed this band in 1970, and it's not called Kiss originally. The name that is given to this band is Wicked Lester. Now, as much as I love these guys, I sure as hell am glad that Wicked Lester didn't make the final cut. And actually, also before Wicked Lester, the band was called Rainbow, but there was a lot of confusion going on because in New York City, uh, on the music scene, there was another popular band called Rainbow, so they changed their name from Rainbow to Wicked Lester, and that was their name that they carried for a while. And Wicked Lester actually uh, had a contract, a recording contract, and recorded an unreleased album as Wicked Lester with uh, Gene and Paul and a couple other bandmates that, that weren't the original members of what would go on to be later named Kiss. So a couple interesting things about when Gene and Paul met in 19, the late 19, I think it was late 1969 and early 1970, uh, Paul goes over to a friend's apartment and he meets this man named Gene Klein, who is, he describes him as being overweight and wearing overalls and sandals and says that you would, that he would be something you would expect off of a new uh, country show at the time. Now, Everyone here, I think, knows what Kiss looks like. Can you imagine Gene Simmons, the fire-spitting demon, an overweight guy with overalls and sandals? That's just a foreign thought in my head. So during this meeting, they have a little jam session. They play some covers. um, And Paul ends up playing him a song that he wrote, which he calls A Sunday Driver, which is later renamed on the first Kiss album, as let me know and if you ever listen to let me know and if you ever if you listen to the the first kiss album in general it just doesn't sound like the kiss you you think of uh it's not heavy on the distortion uh the way the way the track is is mixed it just doesn't sound as heavy and it's it's kind of a groovy track but it but it really works and it's actually one of my favorite kiss songs it's one of my most played kiss songs on my phone Um, but yeah, so he plays him, let me know. And even though there's, there's some disagreements about how they see each other, Paul explains that there's, there's just some, there's some magic there. They really connect. They, they really seem to have the same goal that they're both willing to put in the work to make it. So when Wicked Lester signs this recording contract and record this unreleased album, uh, there are two songs, I'm sorry, There's, I think there's two to three songs on this unreleased album that actually end up making it as either as that form that they recorded it or it was upgraded, and they ended up making it as Kiss songs on later albums. Uh, one of the, two of those songs are Shout It Out Loud, which didn't, which didn't get put on a, a Kiss album until the fourth album in 1976 when Destroyer came out. But that song was inspired from the Holly song, I Want to Shout It Out Loud. Actually, I think the song was just uh, named I Want to Shout. But so Shout It Out Loud, it's, the inspiration comes from the Hollies and that song. 
another song that's on there uh, that's on this album is She and that's written by by Paul and Gene and that song doesn't make it on the first two albums but ends up coming out in 1975 on Dress to Kill which is the band's third album so even though they were they were a little bit all over the place they didn't really have an identity with Wicked Lester uh, both Gene and Paul had an idea of where they wanted to take this thing and what kind of style they were going to be using when they're going to write their music so things go on things go on with Wicked Lester for a couple years and they just they don't really take off. The recording deal doesn't really work out the way uh, that Paul had envisioned it to work out, and it just doesn't get them to make it big. Um, so Gene and Paul both agree that they've got to leave Wicked Lester, um, that it's just not going to make it. So they leave together. They both quit the band, um, and they put an ad out in 1972 in the Rolling Stone looking for a drummer even though they both agreed that they were going to try to find an, uh, a lead guitarist at first. Uh, it just didn't work out. What happened was, apparently while Gene was at college, he had he had met this person who, who, had play, who had played lead guitar in this band that he was in, but he didn't know his name, and he didn't know where he was. All he had to go off of was that he was still performing in clubs and stuff in upstate New York. So Gene and Paul would hitchhike from New York City to upstate to try to find this mystery man. And it, that's just so crazy to me that not only once did they do this, but multiple times that they hitchhike from New York City to go upstate and just search the bars and clubs for this mystery man. And like, what is in my head, what's the moment that you're like, oh, that's him. Yeah, that's he sounds like him. It looks like him. I can't imagine if I was if I was going to start a band with someone and they told me, hey, I've got this lead guitar, lead guitarist, and he can he can be our guy in the band. But what I don't know is how to get in contact with him and where he is or really what he looks like anymore. I just know him from a few years ago. Uh, the idea, the fact that Paul really kind of trusts Gene this much shows you just how I don't know if I want to say how desperate he was to make it, but I guess how committed he was that he was going to make it with this person, with Gene. He's going to trust him enough because this is this is how he's going to build his band and who he's going to do it with. So no surprise, they don't find the fucking dude. Uh, a couple wasted trips, uh, a couple things that happen on this trips. Uh, we get exposed to how much Gene was consumed. Uh, by his love for pussy, uh, Paul kind of talks about that in his book. How these these two girls had given them a given them a ride and took them back to their place. And one of the girls, when they were asleep, uh, walked by them walked by them laying down. And she was naked, and Paul saw Jean's eyes follow this girl all the way. And uh, he had to, basically he had told Jean. If you try to make a move on her and get us thrown out of here, I'm going to kill you. Um, but eventually it does work because the next morning Gene tries this move and it works. Uh, <laughs> so we're already getting, we're early on, we're getting the classic kiss behavior in these two. But so the 1972 ad in Rolling Stone, uh, they put out for, they put an ad out for a drummer and they said they're looking for anyone Looking for someone who would do anything to make it. Well, they get a call from this guy. Uh, 
um, turns out to be Peter Chris. Um, and Peter has this long, long names with multiple names in it. Um, basically, it was already shortened to Peter Criscola, but he went by Peter Chris. And Peter was was our, was was a little bit older than those two. Um, and they had a little meeting with him, and they went to go sit down and eat some pizza, like a typical New Yorker does. And one of the funny things about this meeting is, in the middle of it, Peter just randomly tells the two, hey, I have a nine-inch dick. And in Paul's book, he's talking about, like, how fucking odd is that? What? Do you, how do you even respond to that? Uh, pass the cheese? <laughs> now, Paul, you're going to have to be careful with that, because what kind of cheese are you passing here, Okay. But anyways, so they end up rehearsing together, and they jam a bit, and Paul explains that Peter has to be coached a little bit and can't really perform on his own much, um, but he plays with so much style and so much flash that he gives them something they haven't had before. So they move forward with Peter. Peter is their, Peter's their, becomes their drummer. Um, he becomes Wicked Lester's drummer. And so now they're still on the hunt for a lead guitarist. So for the for the remainder of that year of 1972, they they do shows and they do and they do their thing with with a trio. And Paul talks about how he always envisioned he never envisioned this band, I'm sorry, to be a trio. He always thought it would be at least a quad. And so in 1973 they put out they put out this ad in the Village Voice. Uh, for a guitar player with balls. And so they hold this audition. Several people come out. Uh, Paul talks about it in his book also. One guy comes out who doesn't speak any English, and he brings his wife to translate. Obviously, he's just not the guy. What's interesting, though, is a man named Bob Kulik comes in auditions, and he does a pretty good job, but he just doesn't fit the visual aspects that they were looking for uh, in a lead guitarist. What's funny about this is Bob Kulik is the older brother of Bruce Kulik, who later becomes the lead guitarist of Kiss uh, during the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And he's with Kiss up until uh, the reunion starts in 1996. And Bruce, Bruce is a solid guitarist. I, I love the records with Bruce on guitar. I think he does a badass job. And rest in peace to Bob Kulik. Uh, he's passed on here in the last couple years. Uh, so in walks this guy who's wearing one red sneaker and one orange sneaker. And Gene and Paul and Peter are still all talking to Bob. You know, they like his style, but they're just they're trying to break it to him. They're not going to move forward. And this guy wearing two mismatched shoes plugs in and starts playing. And Paul's like, hey. Shut the hell up, man, and wait your turn. Well, a couple minutes, just a couple minutes into playing with this guy, that was it. The magical moment happened, that aha moment. That man, of course, is Ace Freely. And I think it's hilarious that he comes in wearing two different colored shoes. That is something my Freely would do. I can't tell you how many times that he wants to put on his own shoes. And either they're the right's on the left, the left's on the right. He's got a, a cowboy boot on with a Converse or a Hey Dude. Uh, it makes me, <laughs> reading this makes me feel like, yep, I sure as hell named my kid the right name. <laughs> but in 
But so Ace joins the band. Paul describes the describes their chemistry as organic. They just it was like a natural a natural fit. They were like two puzzle pieces that just came together. Uh, it was it was exactly it was just what he envisioned. He didn't know what he was looking for, but he sure as hell knew when he found it. So now they have their four members: Paul Stanley on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Gene Simmons as the bass guitarist, Peter Chris as the drummer, and Ace motherfucking Freely as the lead guitarist. So later on in in Face the Music, Paul's talking about how some of the backstage and pre-show antics would go on. They ended up dubbing uh, dubbing the name The Chef to Ace. Uh, and the reason they gave it to him is because they said he ha- he always had to taste everything. This is actually pretty pretty weird for me to discuss, but... Uh, because this Ace Ace Freely is my favorite guitarist ever, and he's obviously the most influential musician to me. Uh, I love Ace Freely. Um, but so they talk about one day, one night before a show, they're all getting their makeup on, and Paul's talking about how you know a lot of the times they walked around in towels or not many clothes at all. Well, Peter apparently had took taken his penis and had put it on one of Ace's shoulders and nonchalantly and almost immediately all Ace did was look over and give Peter Chris's penis a kiss. Now (laughs) I still love him questionable, but Hey, he's made more money. He's, (laughs) he slept with more women. He's rocked more shows than me. So, if that's what it takes to make it, I don't know if that's I don't know if I'm ever going to make it musically. So in 1973, Kiss has all four members in the band and they signed with Casablanca, Casablanca Records, which is the label's first act to be signed. And in 1973, they start working on their first album, which is later released in February of 1974, and it is a self-titled debut album simply named Kiss. So one of the kind of odd things that you find that, that I found out about these first three albums is all three of the first three albums are 10 tracks, and they're no longer than 35 minutes. Um, to me, in my mind, I think the average album is you know somewhere between an hour and two hours, hour and a half, kind of, yeah, hour and a half, you know, average. Um, so yeah, only 10 tracks, just barely over 30 minutes. Um, and honestly, at the time, the album doesn't sell well. Uh, now, later we know that the album does go gold, but that album doesn't go gold until 1977. Uh, f- so they had to wait three years to go gold. Um, apparently, Casablanca ha- had put so much funding into Kiss's tours and into their albums that the label almost went bankrupt before a live, uh, the live album alive was released in 1975, which really put kiss on the map. And we're going to get to that here in just a few minutes. So this album, if you're not an automatic kiss fan, a diehard fan like me, and if kiss was brand new, that was something that was coming out today. I really could see why the album sales just weren't there at first, because I feel like this album just doesn't capture the sound 
that Kiss really produces during its live shows, which is something that they realize and they confront with with doing the live the first live album. But the first album, when you go back, when you're already an established fan, you go back and you listen to these songs. The out of the ten songs, almost this is almost an album where it's a front to back listen listen through where you could start the record and play it all the way through. There's just a couple songs on on the album that just sometimes that can be overlooked that you know like ah, I really don't want to listen to that. But there are there are some bangers. There are some real bangers on this album. I mean, you have Strutter, uh, Cold Gin. Cold Gin happens to be uh, my <laughs> my favorite Kiss song, in my opinion. Cold Gin is my favorite Kiss song, and my Apple app calls me out about it because it shows that I have almost 400 plays of that song on my account. Um, let me know. Obviously, that's a so the song. Let me know. I've not always been too big of a fan of it. That's kind of a song, one of those songs where I would skip over it. But A and E did a uh, A and E did a a a quick biography show about Kiss a couple years ago, and um, Gene and Paul they're at Electric Lady Studios, is which is where they recorded their first album, and they talk about how uh, Paul played Sunday Driver, which later became Let Me Know, in front of Gene when they first met. And so since I kind of watched that, it's just kind of been in my head like, hey, this is important. So naturally, as a fan, I've just gravitated towards that song. And it's actually a pretty solid song. And it's a little lighter, you know, for some of you guys that don't like heavy music, if you're not a big fan of distorted guitar, Let Me Know kind of has it all. It's groovy. Uh, it's got pretty light chords. But then Ace really comes in with a solo at the end and just does his thing. And, and it's... You could definitely tell it's a rock song. Um, Deuce, of course, Deuce is a classic song. Uh, that's actually one of the songs that they either open up with or it's usually uh, second or third on their set list when they play live. Uh, so when they were recording Deuce, they were doing, they were all just kind of vibing and jamming. Well, without planning it, Gene, Paul, and Ace had simultaneously nodded their heads and upper bodies in the same in the same motion to the same beat. And one of the I can't remember if it was their producer or their manager had saw it happen live and was like, "Hey, hey, hey!" After they after they had stopped recording, they're like, "Hey, when you play that ending to Deuce, when you're doing the outro, you guys did something, and I want you guys to do it again." Well, that became known as what Paul calls the deuce swerve. So at the end of the song, you know, the riff is like, dun 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 dun, and they move simultaneously together. Now they they all three bunch up on stage, and they do that. They they play the outro and they rock their bodies and guitars in the same motion at the same time. And I always thought when I saw this, I've always wanted every time I've gone to see them, I always try to record it. Um, but so when I saw this, this was before I had kids. I was like, man, I really want, when I have my kid, I really want him to do the do swerve. And it's so it is so fucking cool to see freely in the back seat, in this little car seat, look at the rearview mirror and see him do that when he hears that part. Like almost to the point of like I get tears in my eyes and I can't see it and almost fucking kill us all. <laughs> but it's that is something that I've envisioned and it's so cool to see it come to life. 
Um, and that's that's just getting into why Kiss is so important to me. But we've already discussed that. Let's continue with talking about the story of, of how we get from 1974 to now. But one last thing, before we move on from this first album, I do want to talk about the, the song Black Diamond. Uh, Black Diamond is a solid song. I, I love this song. Um, not many Kiss songs that I don't love. Uh, it's actually one of the longest songs on this album. It clocks in over five minutes. Uh, that's mainly due to a long guitar outro, which is basically just the same guitar chords played slowly, uh, slower and slower. Um, but the reason this song is important is because it's a chord memory in my head. I remember, I can't remember how old I was. I know I was, I think I was in high school. Maybe it was, I was just barely in college, but I'd asked my uncle Paul, I'd asked him, Hey man, what's your favorite kiss song? You know, what, what? What is your favorite? Because kind of when I was be- forming my own identity, you know, I was starting to think for myself, what's my favorite song? What's my favorite Kiss song? Uh, and he had told me Black Diamond. And so since he told me that, I've always, I've always remembered that. And so I've always loved this song. And now that he's no longer with us, uh, anytime this song comes over my phone, I love to listen to it um, and that's just something that's just very important to me. And I'm actually really privileged to be able to share that with you guys. So Kiss releases the debut album. They go on tour. Uh, they start opening for bands like Ario Speedwagon, Blue Oyster Cult. Um, and they have these just flamboyant shows, these just insane shows with all these pyrotechnics. You know, Kiss wanted to really give the fans their money's worth. They really wanted to stand out. And so and this is in, you know, the mid 1970s, they were putting explo- literal explosives in cauldrons and setting them off during their shows. Uh, and, you know, now you have to have certain permits, the fire, fire department has to, or, or some, someone has to certify you to do this. Well, back then they were just basically putting shit in the cauldron and blowing shit up. And who wouldn't love that? I mean, it's good music. It's guys with makeup. And it's fucking exploding shit. <laughs> so if that album released in 1974, later on that year, not only do they record, but they finish recording and release their second album, Hotter Than Hell. Now, Hotter Than Hell clocks in again with 10 tracks, but even shorter. Instead of 35 minutes, this album is only 33 minutes in total length. And what I love about this album is this album starts to it starts to capture the band's tougher sound, um, but it still doesn't it still doesn't really succeed at showing showing everyone the listener how how loud and how good Kiss sounds at their live show. But it really shows a tougher, more rock and roll and rigid side of of Kiss. You know, a side that you really didn't get to really see on that first album. One of the songs on this album is Let Me Go Rock and Roll, which that to me, that is the best track on the entire album. I, I love that song. It's just a, it's an anthem song. It's a, it's it rocks. And actually, that was their that was their encore song for a long time. And they would even play it after after rock and roll all night, which everyone knows you have to be living under a rock if you've never heard rock and roll all night i mean that has been the anthem of rock music for decades i mean since 
since its inception almost. Um, but one of my, on the Alive album, I love how they, tra- I love transitions. I love when an album transitions immediately to another song. And so they finish up the album. The second to last song is I Want to Rock and Roll All Night. And so it finishes up. The crowd's cheering. The music stops. Everyone's clapping and cheering. And it immediately feeds into Ace's guitar coming in. And then Gene starts with a rock and roll. And God, even just saying it, I could picture it in my head. It just gets me going. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I love when albums have songs that pick up right where they left off on the right where they left off on the previous song and so some of the songs on this album and the previous one um what happens is gene and paul are mainly in charge of the songwriting but they're taking a lot they're taking a lot of um perspective from ace freely and a, a couple outside writers well obviously ace isn't with the band anymore but Ace still performs a lot of these songs because he he wrote them or helped write them. Uh, so some songs on Hotter Than Hell that he still performs in his uh, live show are Parasite and She. Um, and Parasite's a pretty solid song. You know, it's to me, it doesn't rank in the top 10 to 15 best Kiss songs, but it's a solid song. And, and Ace really does a good job of, of letting that guitar solo shine during his live shows. Even though I haven't seen Ace live, and actually he's going to be in Houston on March the 10th, I believe. I'm still trying to talk my wife into uh, letting us go down there. I would love to take Freely with us uh, and have a sign that just kind of sits over him that says, His name is Freely, and uh, see if I can get some attention. To, that would be so cool if he if he acknowledged that. Um, but if you, if you haven't ever watched Kiss Live... Uh, I would encourage you to watch um, Kiss perform "Let Me Go Rock and Roll" at the Rock AM Ring in 2010 on YouTube. Uh, so the song starts. Gene, you know, does his rock and roll thing, and then the gu- Tommy Thayer on guitar comes in, and the crowd just explodes. And it's so it's so odd to me that a mosh pit of a mosh pit existing at a Kiss show, well. At this festival, a mosh pit starts. Everyone's jumping. All the lights, the fireworks is go are going off. And, man, talk about a rockin'-ass video, rockin'-ass song. If you don't check out any Kiss songs, if you only check out one, this would be the one that I would want you guys to watch on YouTube. So, Hotter Than Hell, uh, album sales, they kind of they stall again at a less-than-stellar uh, performance. Um, but Kiss is really picking up steam at this point in time with their live performances. Paul talks about in his book, you know, he's, they're opening for a band, a British blues band, which is kind of odd. Like, imagine you go in to see a show, you see Kiss and all their exploding shit, and then you're going to, and then after they come off, it's a blues, uh, a blues band. Uh, but they open for this blue, this British blues band called Savoy Brown, and he talks about how they put on this show, the crowd goes nuts, they love it, and then once the headliner comes on, half the audience is gone. After Kiss is gone, half the audience leaves. Could you imagine being a headliner? You book this opening act, you know, that you want them to warm up the crowd for you, they steal your show, 
and they steal your crowd, and you go out and you perform in front of a a, a half-empty hall or, uh, or auditorium. How crazy would that be? He kind of explained that the band, uh, that uh, that British band had come to the side of the stage while they were performing, and they kind of chuckled and were laughing at him. Um, it's kind of a moment of, uh, look who's laughing now. Uh, we stole your crowd, and uh, they left when you came on. I guess that's what you get for laughing at Kiss. So don't laugh at Kiss, boys and girls. So Kiss does a pretty good thing. You know, when these first two albums are come out, in their first year of being put out there with their official name, their four members, and their first two albums, Kiss actually appears on national television twice that year, both within within two months of, of releasing that first album. Uh, so in... In March of uh, 74, they appear on ABC in concert, and then later, I think it's in April, it may still be in March too, they appear on the Mike Douglas show. The reason I bring this up is because, think about the state of America in the 1970s. Still very conservative. Uh, so imagine sitting at home on a Friday night, your your uh, nine-year-old kid, and you're sitting in front of the television with your parents. Maybe grandma and grandpa's there. Somebody, you know, regardless. You're sitting in front of the television with your family. And you turn on this show who is going to show a live performance that they're featuring that week. And these guys in makeup, black suits, uh, collars around their neck, parts of their legs, of clothes on their legs missing. Uh, this guy who breathes fire. Uh, has blood coming out of his mouth and this insanely large tongue and he's sticking it out on you. That's on your TV and that's what you see. So it's just crazy to me that that happens and they don't get quote-unquote canceled and it actually drives the people at home crazy and they're like, I gotta have more of this. It's like, here's this product, you don't know that you've been waiting for it, but here it is and you love it. So then now... We're in March of 1975, and here comes the third album, Dressed to Kill. Okay, so remember, Kiss's debut album was released February of 1974. It's only been 13 months, and the third album's out. That's a shit ton of work. Three albums in a year and a month. And Paul goes into detail on this a little bit. He talks about how his lack of having a life outside of KISS and his obsession with succeeding and making it and developing this band caused caused them to work so hard, well, that's kind of starts some of the tension between the other members. Gene and Paul both have this insane drive to make it and and put this put this band out there. Well, Ace and Peter, they're very motivated they they want to make it too who doesn't but they're not they're not excited to be in the recording studio for 6 months at a time and be when they're not in the recording studio be traveling across the country all the time uh, i mean it's like working 365 days a year i can't say i don't blame them do but maybe i would like to literally rock and roll all night for a living rather than doing what i do right now but i guess Anything that you do for a living becomes a job, and you would like some time off. And when you're releasing three albums in 13 months, 
You're not really getting much time off. So, Dress to Kill, another 10-track album, another sub-30-minute album. Um, now, this, the sound of this album, to me, it, it does take a step back. It doesn't really encapsulate what the live show sounds like. It's a bit soft. Um, it's, still a gro- it's still groovy. Um, and if you're a Kiss fan, you love it. Uh, but it, you can, I think we can all agree, it definitely wasn't their best. And it's om- it, it, at the time, it almost seems like a step back. Um, but what we do have on this album, this album does contain what would become the Rock and Roll National Anthem, Rock and Roll All Night. I'm going to preach it to the choir, ladies and gentlemen, who has not heard this song. I'm actually genuinely, I'm genuinely want to know if you haven't heard rock and roll all night, let me know. Um, that way I could see, I mean, what happened? Where did, uh, where did it go wrong in your life? No, just kidding. Uh, but it's just, I feel like that song is so, so iconic, you know, I want to rock and roll all night, you know, I feel like it's been in a lot of movies. I'm pretty sure it's been in some video games. Um, that song has just been everywhere. But once again, less than stellar performance in record sales. And like I touched on earlier, Casablanca, the record label, is in some hot water. I mean, they're almost bankrupt. And I want to say, so Neil Bogart was the head of this. Uh, he was the head of this record label. He started it. He was the one that wanted to sign Kiss. He ended up having to front, I think he had to front, $200,000 of his own money to fund this album and the rest of of, uh, of Kiss's tours. Uh, he may not have had to fund this album. He may have put that money towards uh, Alive, which is the next album. Um, but that shows you just how bad that the record label was doing at the time and how subpar Kiss was actually performing on the charts and in record sales. But In Walks Alive, which is the first live album Kiss records over four shows in 1975. And it clocks in at over almost an hour and a half, 18 or 16 tracks, I'm sorry, uh, all live, all edited from uh, their live performance. This kickstarts and skyrockets Kiss to a whole new level that they weren't on before they uh, before this album comes out, and this is where everyone who everyone gets introduced to that intro. You know, you wanted the best, you got it. The hottest band in the land, Kiss. You know, that's happening. You know, during the live shows, but those those who hadn't been to the shows now get to experience that at home, and that whole intro just takes off, and people are just waiting. They're lining up to hear that. Uh, they're they're expecting that before Kiss takes the stage, and it just drives them nuts. So even though that we talk about how Alive was successful and how it ch- kind of changes the course for Kiss, critically, it wasn't fully accepted. I mean, it got a lot of bad reviews, and that's that's the beauty of, I guess, art, but like movies and and TV and music. You know, critics can say what they want they can they can tear stuff apart but you have this cult of people who love it really that kind of counters 
and takes over whatever critics say. Because if the people are loving it and they're buying it, whoever's putting it out is going over. So this album actually peaks at number nine on the Billboard charts. And all of a sudden, the script gets reversed for Kiss. Blue Oyster Cult, Ario Speedwagon, all these bands who Kiss was opening for. By the end of 1975, these bands are opening for Kiss. Could you imagine being being these bands, being the Blue Oyster Cult boys? What the hell happened? These guys were just opening up and opening up for us. So the sales go crazy. This album goes platinum. And guess what happens by 1977? Over the next two years, the first three albums, the debut album, Hotter Than Hell, and Dress to Kill all go platinum. Alive saves Kiss, saves the label, and Kiss is now on the map. And now we get into this era of where Kiss, quote-unquote, rules the world. I mean, MTV back in the, I think it's in the 2000s, maybe in the 2010s, I'm pretty sure it's the mid to late 2000s, is putting out these these episodes of when blank ruled the world. Kiss has their own episode because think about it. From 1976 to the early 80s, Kiss is ruling the airwaves. They're ruling... Uh, ruling the st- ruling the stores, TVs, all the merchandise, which we're going to get in a minute about merchandising. But Kiss just caught fire and just took over. I mean, obviously they did because, look, they had so much influence that someone who was born in 94, has it, they've become that person's favorite band and is hosting an episode of a podcast about them. I would say that's pretty influential. So Kiss... After the success of All of Alive and everything starts going platinum, literally everything they touch is not just gold but platinum, they have their own Marvel comic book. Uh, Kiss actually has this has a movie come out in the later 1970s called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. I mean, they have their own fucking movie. Uh, there's Kiss Lunchboxes, which I have to my left. I have a whole table full of Kiss memorabilia. Uh, they have pinball machines. I mean, Kiss underwear. Even today, there's a Kiss coffin. If I had the, I think it's probably almost $20,000 now, please bury me in the Kiss coffin. If this show takes off, if I, if it makes some money, hell, I would love to use it to purchase the Kiss coffin. Send me down the river in the coffin. Boom. Gene Simmons, his eyes are all Benjamins hearing me say that. <laughs> so all the success of Kiss we've recognized but now there's some issues within the band that are beginning to surface becoming apparent and will eventually cause major disruption in the band and cause two of the members to leave Uh, but that won't be for at least another five to six years but but what's going on is peter i'm sorry paul and gene are starting to realize that you know ace ace is an alcoholic who loves to booze and you know, they hadn't spent enough time around each other uh, when this starts to happen. And Paul talks about how it was funny at first and it was something to laugh at. Um, something that's that's actually kind of kind of crazy. We're lucky to still have Ace after this. Paul talks about it in the book. Uh, one night, Ace is trying to see how many times, how fast he can go down a hill in his car and 
make this make a turn and how long he can wait to make this turn and successfully complete it. Well, he's mixing alcohol with this situation. Lo and behold, he wraps his car around a pole. I mean, what happens if, if Ace's drunk ass kills himself during this? And so this behavior just gradually becomes worse and worse over the following years and leads to almost unreconcilable problems and the relationships become strained. They become broken. Obviously, the band doesn't break up, but they lose two of the founding members. And luckily, luckily, the band is not left in turmoil, but it's not the easiest thing to recover from. And Paul kind of describes Peter seeming just to resent everything that's coming, that's been given to him. And uh, he's having some attitude issues, drugs and alcohol. Ace and Peter kind of gravitate towards each other because they're the two members of the band who do indulge in drinking and and doing drugs and engaging in erratic behavior. So it causes this big, eventually causes this divide and a big gap between members of the band. And you almost have these two factions of of the band and eventually they splinter. Uh, one of the last negative things that I'll talk about this period before I get back to some of the success and the good times, um, you know, Ace's alcoholism and behavior kind of it, it definitely interferes with with the band and what they're trying to do uh, during during recording sessions. He would leave early and go play cards with his friends. And Paul talks about how he just can't wrap his head around someone else is going to play your guitar parts on our album that has your name on it just so that you can go play cards with your friends and get loaded. And as much as I love Ace Freely, and he's been sober for years now. Uh, he's I think he's got 15 years of sobriety. I love that. I love him. But at the time when he's going through it, all of that's clouding his mind and causing him to, to do these things. It's insane. I mean, this is your craft. This is your this is your baby. This is your ticket out, and you want to, you just almost want to trade that to booze to get high and hang out with your friends. It's it's insane. It's something that I guess, unless I was going down that path, I just I just don't see myself doing it. But it happened, uh, and obviously they made it through, uh, but. A very close call. Almost things like that can really kill a band early. So Alive takes off. Kiss takes up, starts taking over the world. They start entering and holding continuous spots on the charts. And what comes next? The mother of all Kiss albums, Destroyer. I say the mother of all Kiss albums, but I don't think it's the best one in my opinion and we'll get to my my favorite album but man this album I mean it comes out fucking firing and it may not be my favorite album but it does have my favorite uh, album cover work on there uh, the artwork is is phenomenal and uh, I have shirts I have multiple posters uh, about the destroyer artwork and once again, another 30-minute album, 31 minutes, and 
technically it has 10 tracks listed but the number 10 song on the on the album rock and roll party i don't know if you can count that as a song it's a bunch of noise honestly i've kind of heard i've kind of heard this uh what's in this song in a in a few nightmares uh it's weird it's crazy it's like a mixture it's like background noise really is what i would kind of describe it as but the songs that are that are on this album i mean they are just lights out i mean here we get the 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 first song on the album detroit rock city uh, and it really builds up the suspense when the song starts for about a minute and 15 seconds is uh is someone who it looks like he works at a restaurant and then he gets into his car he turns on his radio and uh rock and roll night's playing and then all of a sudden you just hear you know his car revving and then here comes the intro to detroit rock city you know the and and it just takes off uh we get god of thunder we get uh shouted out loud um and shout it out loud, like we've already covered that. Right, that got its inspiration from that song by the Hollies. Uh, and I bring up God of Thunder because God of Thunder has during the live performances. That's when Gene he he takes over the mic. The band kind of leaves him uh, on the stage by himself, and he's talking to the crowd. That's when he goes through his "Oh yeah," and the crowd you know respond "Oh yeah," and he he does that for a minute or two, and then he does the. If you're not familiar, he does the blood capsules where he he spits blood and you see all the blood dripping down from his chin onto the stage, onto the guitar, onto the rest of his outfit. And then I don't know if it's always been like this, but I know that for the last few years, like 10, 20 years, he's flown up to a, a floating stage at the top where they they suspend him and they put him on that stage. And that's where he sings God of Thunder. Uh, and then we get songs like Beth and Beth was well received because Beth is a much stronger. It's a ballad. Uh, it's got a piano track and Peter Chris is, uh, he's leading the vocals on this. And this is where we now start to see more vocals come from other members of the band. We haven't seen Ace Freely sing yet because he, he, he's choosing not to sing. He puts a lot of input with the lyrics, but he's not singing yet. Um, but Beth ends up, I believe it ends up somewhere pretty high on the billboard charts as a single. It ends up peaking at number seven, which is the highest of any kiss song in history, uh, on the charts. Uh, and it's still a staple today. I mean, even though Peter's no longer with the band, Eric Singer right now is the current drummer. He still, he still sings it. Um, very, very, very popular song in pop culture. Hell, I still listen to it. Uh, if I ever have a daughter, uh, when it's time to pitch names, I mean Beth is on is on is on the list. Um, so hopefully my wife once again will oblige me. If not, hey, I'll be one for two with Freely. And if you want to stick with Kiss songs, uh, I may pitch the name Shandy, uh, which is the name of which is the name of a song on the nineteen eighty one album unmasked which when we get to that one we'll discuss that is not the most popular uh most popular kiss album which now then we start getting into a streak of of kind of floppy uh kiss albums uh, we're gonna get into 
music from the elder, which you got as a Kiss fan. If you're around Kiss fans, you got to be careful when you talk about the elder. I think we should all agree that the elder is not that good of an album. But if you say that in front of the wrong person, you might just get punched in the face. But we're going to cover those two albums here in just a few minutes. Uh, We're not going to get into them now. It's not their time yet. But we're still in the year 1976. We've got the success of the live album. Uh, Destroyer follows up perfectly. Uh, Kiss is is on fire. They're spreading. But with as much popularity as you get, you're going to get a lot of hate too. So a lot of... It's almost... I don't want to compare it to Mothers Against Drunk Driving because Mothers Against Drunk Driving stands for a good cause. Okay. So we're going to go away from that. But... It's, it's a lot of mothers, kind of, that are kind of taking a stand against KISS. They don't want their kids listening to KISS because a lot of these songs are about sex. They're about women. Uh, this, is, this is when it starts that KISS is a satanic cult. That KISS stands for the Knights and Satan Service. <laughs> you cannot make this shit up. Uh, I could picture it coming out, something like KISS coming out now, and just... The conservatives, the conservative mothers and parents all over the, all over the country, just totally shitting all over whatever it is, and it's not. It's so far from the truth. At no point is Kiss a satanic cult. Are they putting out any kind of satanic messages? And Paul talks about it in his book. It's fronted by two Jews. Well, this is the furthest thing from it. Um, when we get into Kiss in the nineties. Uh, in the reunion tour, in the reunion between uh, the original members, we'll talk about the movie Detroit Rock City. Uh, so that comes out, and I believe it's 1999. But there's a scene in that movie where a bunch of moms are having a protest outside of a uh, Kiss concert in Detroit, Michigan at Cobble Hall, which is a very uh, coveted place for Kiss fans. Uh, and they're talking about how Kiss is are the Knights and Satan's service. And that one of them has this sign, and it spells "kiss backwards," and they're chanting, "What is kiss backwards? Sick!" And you're just—I can't imagine being one of the kids seeing your mom do that, and you're just just thinking, like, "What the actual fuck is going on?" Uh, so the kiss logo actually is in the middle of some controversy at this time too. Uh, so kiss, the two S's in kiss are spelled with a lightning bolt. Um, so the S d- looks like it resembles the SS of Nazi Germany. And once again, Paul talks about this in the book of how that's furthest from the truth because he's a, he's Jewish. Gene is Jewish. Why would they allow something, uh, of Nazi culture in their band when some of their families are, are Holocaust survivors? Uh, but nevertheless, so Germany doesn't allow, uh, the the original Kiss logo to be printed or distributed in in their country, so the uh, lightning bolt S's are replaced with two S's that kind of resemble a backward Z, and so a couple of other countries such as Austria, Switzerland, and Israel, uh, to avoid controversy with the S the double SS logo, they actually uh, adopt that uh, backward Z S logo as well. So 1976, same same song, same dance for Kiss. Two album, we get two albums in this year again. 
So in the first two years of its inception, we get, what is it, six albums? That is a lot of work in the studio. That's a lot of touring. There might be some friction if I'm doing that much work with four or three other bandmates. Uh, regardless, in 1976, we get Rock and Roll Over. Rock and Roll Over, say what you want. That is my favorite Kiss album. I love the artwork. Not as much as I love uh, Destroyer, but Rock and Roll Over, 10 songs again, only 33 minutes. I can, I can listen to this album from the very first second to the very last. There's not a song... There's just not a song on this album that I can skip. Um, maybe not as influential as Destroyer, but I'm gonna stand by that's my that's my pick for my favorite Kiss album is Rock and Roll Over. Um, uh, we get songs uh, Calling Doctor Love is on this uh, Hard Luck Woman, which is another ballad, uh, another uh, Peter Chris ballad. Um, now when they play it, they really play it during a little acoustic set that uh, VIP VIP ticket holders get. uh, So they'll play it before they go out. They're not in makeup. Uh, I haven't seen it played during a a full set in a a while. And I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, if you guys know the answer to that and that they do play it, let me know. Uh, But I just haven't seen it. Um, A couple other songs a lot of people don't really kind of know about. Yeah, take me, uh, ladies' room, which is which is featured in that Detroit Rock City movie, and when I'm looking at the album on my phone, I see that all ten of these songs from this album have been have been downloaded. That's just that shows just how much I I love this album. And if I'm not mistaken, they recorded this album in a theater. Uh, I'm not sure which theater. I'm, I'm sure I can go back and look and find it which one it is. Uh, but they really kind of wanted to. They wanted to continue to capture the live feel of their of their shows on this album and it, it, it is it is a bit rigid it is a bit you could feel and hear how rough the songs are of course it doesn't come close to like a live um but that's what they tried to do and i i think it works maybe not as doesn't work as much as they wanted it to but i think it still does get the job done but uh let's move on into 1977 which sees the entrance of the album Love Gun. Love Gun. Awesome album. And I love what comes with the album. So back in the day when you would uh, when you would purchase the, the vinyl, you would get this uh, toy toy gun, and it was the Love Gun. And so that goes along with merchandising and all the other stuff that came with it at the time. But the album is another, is another rock-solid album. Uh, the title track, Love Gun, honestly super super badass song uh when it comes to pop culture if you've ever seen the movie role models um that song is featured in there when he's trying to show one of the kids kiss and he shows him love gun he's like he's talking about his dick uh which is sorry boys and girls if you didn't figure out what the love gun was now you know what the real love gun is but this this album has has some solid tracks. It starts off so strong with "I Stole Your Love." We get kind of a a questionable song in Christine sixteen uh, with Gene Simmons on vocals. Which this is one of those songs that I just don't know if it would make it today without being canceled. But what can you do without really getting canceled? Who knows? This podcast may get me canceled one day. 
uh, we finally get Ace Freely on vocals in Shock Me. And I think he, he kills it. And he still kills it when he sings this song today. Um, just just a groovy song. Um, and I, I think he does a good job on vocals. I think he's underrated on vocals. Uh, of course, the title, like we've already talked about the title song. We get a couple goofy songs on this album, such as uh, Hooligan, Almost Human, Plaster Caster. These songs, I want to say Paul kind of talks about these songs are kind of Gene songs that just don't feel like they have too much effort into it, but they're so musically sound they can make it work. Um, one cool thing I kind of want to touch on on this is they have a cover of "Then She Kissed Me," which, if you're a fan of mob movies, uh, in Goodfellas, when Ray Liotta's character takes his, uh, he's dating this girl at the at the time on their first date. That song is playing, and I think it's a female singing and. I just can't think of a rock band, especially one to kiss his magnitude, making a cover of this song. But they make it. They make it work. Which, I mean, my hats off. I mean, they, what don't they make work? Um, but so 1977. That's where we get we get Love Gun. Which, ooh, ah uh, man, definitely a top three album. I really don't want to get into if it's number two or if it's number three for me right now. Um, but. 1977 we start seeing more and more problems within the band things become more more heated uh issues start coming to surface and starts kind of boiling over a bit so kiss goes on the love gun tour and they they have these magnificent shows they've got you know four four albums under their belt they've got a gold record in the live and later this year um, their first three albums go go gold, and so things are things are going great for the band on the surface. They're making money, they're merchandising, they're starting their world takeover. They're selling out shows. All these bands that they were opening for now are opening for them. They're on TV. They're doing interviews. They're having champagne in uh, in the dressing room before shows. But what we don't see, and what we realize later, with the ability of hindsight, is the band is on the verge of crumbling. An implosion is building up, and Kiss has to do, Kiss has to make a few small decisions that don't ultimately stop this implosion, rather they just delay it. Paul explains that once the Love Gun Tour stops, they stop touring, um, Everything's wrapped up. They they're gonna have some time off and they go home. He calls it what he feels is like this is the peak of their popularity. This is there this is they've reached the top of the mountain. This is as high as they can go. This is definitely the highest they've been. And he says he doesn't feel like it's they're at the top of the mountain. He feels that it's already starting to go downhill. Just as quickly as they got there, once one second went by when they're at the top, here they come back down. Ace and Peter are getting deeper and deeper into their alcohol and drug use and their attitudes and and their personalities seem to alternate between hostility and incoherence. They can't they can't focus after a show. They can't they're totally inebriated. They can't stand. They're they're not who they were when this band started. 
And the unfortunate thing is that these issues were already there. They didn't come up after the success. They just weren't so deep in their issues and, and addictions. They were able to to work and wait until the work was done um, to start indulging. Now we're indulging in the middle of work. We're indulging with the work. And now the work is starting to get affected. Can you imagine this most this successful band, this band that I keep saying it, but this band that took over the world, all of a sudden, they're no longer speaking to each other, and they just came off the mo- one of the most their most successful tour to date. They can't stand each other. They're not talking. Well, what's next? What's going to happen? Well, we do know that they don't play another gig. They don't perform in a live show together as Kiss for another year. And remember, we talked a little bit about how busy the time has been from 1974, February 74, when the title album, the debut album, was released. Up until now, it's almost been nonstop work. Could that be some of the problems? Yes, Gene and Paul were dedicated and didn't have much of a life outside of the band, but that doesn't mean that everyone attached to this thing wants to work 24-7, 365 on this thing. Could that be... One of the driving forces behind these issues developing quicker and quicker. Uh, we don't know. Um, if you ever read uh, Ace and Peter's book, they kind of they kind of talk about that a little bit, and it's it's a little evident that that does have a little bit of a play in 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 how things transpired. But while on the Love Gun tour, Kiss decides that hey, we've got three more new albums under our belt. Let's do another live album. And so they come and they release Alive 2, uh, which which is kind of tricky because they can't they have to be careful. They have to restructure their shows because now this live album can't have the same live tracks that the first live album had. So they have to take and reconstruct a Kiss show and only play songs that were on these other three albums not songs that they've been playing before which a lot of those songs are staples so you could possibly potentially upset some fans here because hey i came to hear this song but so anyways kiss they re- they do complete and they release a live too but by only playing these new songs they don't have enough tracks to fit a four-sided double album so what do they do they decide let's get back in the studio and let's add a few new tracks few new recorded tracks that people haven't heard, and so they add it as bonus tracks to the album. Um, out of the songs, I have to say that it's Ace Frehley's vocals on Rocket Ride is pretty much the only highlight from these new songs. But unfortunately, when, they, when Kiss is recording these new songs, Ace Frehley isn't included. He's not playing any of the tracks. The only track he is played on uh, is Rocket Ride. Uh, now, the band does give him credit, but it's not re- it's not revealed to almost 20 years later that Bob Kulik, who we talked about earlier, Bob, Bob was one of the guys who auditioned for the band uh, back in 1972, 73. Uh, he ended up playing those those the guitar parts in those songs and is later given credit. So this... It's all coming together. The big picture's coming together. We've got a serious problem. Our lead guitarist is okay with 
not playing the guitar parts for his own songs for our songs. Instead, we're using a guy who's not even in the band in a in the band someone who we denied so we can use who we currently have. So disasters is is definitely forming yeah, within the band. And so we've already discussed after alive and after the tour is over uh, that Kiss is Kiss is in some trouble. So Kiss's manager Bill, Bill, and I'm gonna butcher his last name. I think Bill Acoin. Uh, he ends up pushing for Kiss to put out a movie, a movie. Uh, what ends up coming of this is Kiss shoots films and releases a movie called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Now, you have to be a diehard Kiss fan to say, "Hey, I like this." Because it is not a good, it is not a good movie. It's corny. It's low budget. It's something that I imagine if I played it for any of you guys who aren't Kiss fans like I am, you're probably gonna fall asleep and, ter- and you'll never wherever you leave off, you're never gonna pick up and finish it. I could just tell you that. But us Kiss fans that really love this band, uh, we're we're like Star Wars fans. They could put out a complete shit show, but guess what? We're going to go buy it. We're going to go pay money to go see it. Uh, now that I say that out loud, I'm part of the reason why they keep putting out shitty Star Wars stuff. Because I keep paying money to go see it. Anyways, that can be its own episode there. But let's move on. So Kiss is going to release a movie, uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. We know it's not good uh, during the... Uh, during the screening of the film, uh, they uh, they explain that they sink down on their seats because as it's playing, people are openly laughing, not with Kiss, laughing at Kiss. Uh, so imagine you putting out a movie, putting out something, and you're with people, you're premiering it, you're showing it, and then they laugh at you. That's pre- got to be pretty humiliating. Hopefully I don't ever have to listen to this podcast with any of you because some of you may be laughing at me. Hey, laugh at me, do whatever you want to, just please keep hitting play. <laughs> so in the middle of filming this movie, there's a scene when they're going to they're gonna perform. They're going to perform uh, a concert at Magic Mountain. Well, during filming this scene, Ace announces that he wants to quit the band. So the band holds a meeting, and what's decided is the next... Kiss isn't going to release an album next. The next piece of work is going to be that every member is going to leave, is going to put out their own solo album. So the fix is, Ace, you don't have to leave the band. Let's bandage it up. Let's just keep the ship afloat. And everyone's going to release a solo album. So no one has to collaborate together. Uh, You could do your own thing and still be a part of Kiss. And so that's what we get in 1978. On the same day, Kiss releases four solo albums. Every member has their own has their own solo album with their own songs that they've either covered, uh, had someone to collaborate with, and write new songs. Uh, and they have each have their own artwork. Which, gosh, I remember seeing when I first found out about it. You see the pictures, and it's so cool. It's like, oh man, this this is an awesome time. This must have been an awesome time for Kiss. But what we what you don't realize if you're looking in from the outside, you're seeing you're seeing something 
that Kiss put out on a whim to keep the band together. And this band is on the verge of crumbling and falling apart. Uh, so the four of the four albums, um, I love Peter Chris, but I'm going to say he had the worst of the solo albums. It's just, it's just a hard album to get through. Um, Paul talk, Paul of course talks about it in his book. You know, he's not musically sound. He's not that bright. Uh, that's really not my opinion why it's not good. It's just, he wasn't the best songwriter. Uh, Jeans and Paul's, uh, their solo albums are are pretty good. They're pretty good. They're just not very Kiss-like. Uh, but, you know, they get their chance to do what they want to do. Some of their... They get to put their fingerprints on something. And I may be biased here because Ace Freely is my favorite member of Kiss, but he has, to me, he has the most solid solo album. Uh, it is just... It, it's just it's rock and roll man it really is from start to finish and there's a few there's a song new york groove from this album that becomes a hit that kiss is going to perform during their live shows together as a band uh, a song that ace did on and released on his solo album not a song that was released on a kiss album and actually there's another song on this album called speeding back to my baby uh so i remember when freely was born uh you know, I had spent some time at home before I went back to work. I think I took like five or six weeks off. And so when I went back to work, <laughs> when I would drive home, I would I would always listen to uh, I would always listen to that song speeding back to my baby. Um, and so it, it starts off with a heavy guitar riff coming in. And he's talking it, some of the lyrics talk about driving 95 miles an hour. That's just that's what it felt like. I was so eager to get off work, get away from all the stress, and just come back and see my baby. So Kiss ships a million copies of each solo album uh, on the day of release. Um, that's how much they plan uh, They plan to, to sell. That's their goal after the, the recent success of the last few albums, and now all albums being certified at least gold. But Kiss only, only sells about 500,000 albums uh, apiece. So roughly... Roughly half, uh, they shipped four million in total, but only sold two million. So two million records left over doesn't really spell success uh, still being in the making. Not only for Kiss, but for the record label Casablanca, which eventually does uh, does not end well for the label. So we get into 1979. The band's now been together for about five years, and. The next album that comes out is Dynasty. Now, this is where Kiss gets a lot of hate. It, they almost, fans begin to call them sellouts uh, because this is the rise of the disco era. And people see Dynasty, even the name Dynasty, the look of the album and the songs on, on the album as selling out to disco. Which, when you have the star of the, of the album, I Was Made For Loving You, when you hear it, at first glance, you want to say, yeah, it is disco. It is. But Paul talks about in his book how he's he, he doesn't understand why people do consider it a disco song when at the time when he was writing it with, with his co-writer, he, he says it was written in a musical whorehouse. Um, but whether that doesn't make it disco, I don't know. It is a bit more groovy. I think it's solid. Songs like, you know, I Was Made For Loving You. Um 
sure knows something. They're definitely a little bit softer, and the band is really flamboyant. And in the music videos, they're a bit, their outfits are a bit disco-y. Um, but the songs, just like Kiss, does what they do. They they make them work in a Kiss style. Um, Ace has a song Two Thousand Man," which is a little bit heavier. Uh, it brings in more distorted guitar. Um, so the album, the album to me, it's not a bad album. It's a good album. Uh, it's an album full of songs that I love to listen to on a on a pretty regular basis. But not all fans receive it this way, especially not at the time. Uh, of course, this album is more loved as time goes on. Um, as fans do recall, you know, maybe this album's not as bad as we made it out to be. So at this point in time, the band is different. The band has changed. And as Paul Stanley describes it, that's still the same four guys. But is it a rock band? He can ask himself at this time, is this a rock band anymore? Or are we just four rich guys who lack an identity again? And this does end up spelling kind of the end of Peter's play in the band. Um, Peter's actually not used on Dynasty, although he is given credit. He is on the album cover, uh, but he's not used and he's, he doesn't play the drum parts in this album. So the Dynasty tour kicks off and what happens? The first show is canceled. Is this an omen? of what's about to come when this thing all wraps up and this tour and album are over with? Maybe so. The The shows and the band itself, they're not growing anymore. In fact, they're shrinking. They're having less of a draw. Not enough, not enough people are coming out. People are starting to second guess why they're going to see KISS, this rock band that they so loved one year ago. Are they a disco band? What is this band? Why are we going to pay money to see them again? And now, Peter is becoming completely unmanageable on this tour. Nothing nothing the band chooses to do is right. It's not, he bitches about everything. And now, of course, this is all, this is all according to Paul Stanley. And Peter, during this tour, Peter decides one night that he's going to punch through, through a glass mirror and cut his hand really deeply and needed to be surgically repaired. He's going to have to get stitches. And on top of this, his behavior during the show begins to compromise the band. He start, It's not unusual for him to be throwing his drumsticks at Gene, Peter, and Ace during the live performance. They're in his way. He, he wants to see the crowd. The crowd wants to see him. Things are just spiraling. Things are on the verge of, of disaster. The friction is increasing, especially between Paul and Peter. Paul's now thinking, well, you know what? If you if you want to be the center of attention, get your ass up, learn to play the guitar, and be at the front of the stage. If you're not going to do that, stay as the drummer and stay in the back. And now things finally hit an all-time low when one night Peter decides he's going to fuck with the band. And it starts off that he's playing too fast. Paul tells him on stage, you need to slow it down. So then in the middle of a song, he'll slow it down and then speed it up out of spite to mess with other members of the band. And this this pisses Paul off. After the show, Paul and Gene talk about it. And they agree that they both that they want Peter gone and out of the band. Kiss tries to cancel the rest of the tour, 
Bill, their manager, talks them into finishing the dates. You don't have many dates left. And he tries to persuade the band to keep Peter, give him a second chance, which the band ultimately does. Uh, they allow Peter to come back, but, and they've already started working on their new album, Unmasked. Um, but Peter, Peter's not, he's, his drum play isn't on this album, once again. His parts are played by somebody else. But they do have some rehearsals with him, or they do try to have a rehearsal with Peter, and it just doesn't go well. Pretty much the relationship is shot, the work ethic is shot, everyone can kind of look at each other and know. It's over. This is it. Paul describes it as if someone's drowning, you try to bring them up and you try to help them. But if they're going to bring you down with them, it's time to cut loose and call it quits, which is exactly what happens. Uh, one of the po- the popular song from the album Unmasked, which isn't a which isn't a good album, uh, but the popular song from this album is Shandy. Uh, they go to film. They go to film the music video. And Peter comes in to shoot the film, to shoot the music video, and he knows that this is going to be the last time that he does anything with Kiss. So once they wrap the wrap for the day, the video is shot. Um, Peter packs all of his stuff up, takes his makeup case with him, and when he leaves, that's it. No more Peter Chris. Kiss is without a drummer. Peter Chris is no more in Kiss, and this band becomes a trio again. Unmask the album it tanks in the United States and for the remainder of the remainder of that year of 1980 the band remains inactive so now the band is in search of a drummer because they've booked shows uh, they've booked shows in in Europe and Asia but they can't go without a drummer so they start looking for a drummer they're not looking for for someone big, uh, an ex, an ex drummer from a big band, they're looking for someone fresh. So in steps a man named Paul Caravello from Brooklyn to audition for Kiss. He's not the biggest guy. He's got a huge set of hair, and he does he does good enough that they're gonna bring him back for a second, a second audition, and they decide that this is our guy. But there's already a Paul. A Paul in Kiss, Paul Stanley. So he changes his name from Paul Caravello. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome the newest member of Kiss, Eric Carr. Eric Carr, in my opinion, as much as I love Peter Chris, Eric Carr is the best drummer that Kiss ever had. Now those of you, if you keep up with Kiss, you know that Eric Carr isn't the current drummer. Eric Singer is. We're going to get into later on the next show what happened to Eric Carr. A tragic, a tragic, tragic thing. But Eric Carr is in the band and he becomes the second drummer for Kiss. And in my opinion, goes on to be the greatest drummer Kiss has ever had. And let's touch on, before this audition, Eric was a stove repairman. And he loved Kiss, and he was starstruck during the audition that the first thing he did was ask them for, for their autographs. That's I can't blame a man for that. If I auditioned for Kiss or another one of my favorite bands right now, that's probably the first thing I'm going to do, and hopefully they won't punch me in the face and send me packing. So the band is struggling. They're struggling to find 
a direction that they're going in musically. They're struggling to write songs. They're still struggling to stay together. Ace, with Peter gone, Ace, Ace's behavior kind of goes up a bit. Um, but quickly, it's it's it deteriorates again due to his drinking. And to record another album that's planned to release in 1981, uh, the band chooses to relocate to Toronto to record. Uh, and Ace doesn't go with them. And it Paul labels it as not because Ace didn't agree with where the music, where the band was going musically, but rather he couldn't work because he was too drunk to do it. Hopefully everyone's noticing a pattern here. Ace Freely wasn't a team player at this time. And as much as I love him, become a, it became a hindrance to the band, just as Peter Chris had. So Gene and Paul start writing songs, and they're just not the best. They're not songs that you can hang your hat on. They're not songs that you want to share share with. But they still get enough songs to get an album together. And we get the album in 1981, Music from the Elder. And as I discussed earlier, it is once again now Kiss's second album in a row that's just not very good. Now, there is, there is a good song that I do like, uh, and it's uh, A World Without Heroes, but it's not the original that gets me. It's the performance later in the 90s, uh, in 1995, when Kiss performs unplu- on MTV's Unplugged. It's the unplugged live version of this song that really makes you like it. You would prefer almost prefer to listen to that version rather than the original version on the album in 1981 so now with the release of the elder kiss does something that they haven't done in their existence and that is not launch a tour after release of an album they had no steam they had no momentum they had two shot albums they had a lead guitarist who's in and out of the band who they can't tell is he in is he out what the hell's going on with him you've got this new drummer eric who is poor soul. He thinks he's joining this super mega rock group, and it's almost like he joined the drama club at this time. So Kiss starts working on their next album, uh, Creatures of the Night. This album is important because after this album, and after the tour that follows with it, that's going to end an era. It's going to end the makeup era, because after this album, Kiss is going to make the decision to take off the makeup and become truly unmasked unlike what you may think happened during the unmasked album and time kiss is going to go full frontal we're going to see their faces for the first time and we're they're not going to be able to hide behind the paint anymore but the process isn't like it used to be gene and paul aren't writing together anymore uh, they have conflicting ideas about where they're at musically so now they're bringing in other talent to help write Kiss music. And lo and behold, as you may have guessed it, Ace Freely is still part of the band, but so many other guitarists are have their fingerprints on this album because they're the ones that are recording solos and guitar parts for the tracks in this album. Um, Eddie Van Halen almost gets on this album. He comes by the studio one night, and because he knew they were looking for a guitar player to play the parts for their new album. So Creatures of the Night releases. 
Uh, it's a it's a pretty solid album, but Kiss had lost so much momentum, and it's kind of the same story as it was uh, after they released Dynasty and both albums there afterwards, Unmasked and The Elder. The shows just they're just they're not selling. The crowds are small. Um, while since they t- didn't have this album that was the best album ever, it's it's not well received at the time. Um, but Creatures of the Night, it, it does have it does have some good tracks on there. Uh, War Machine, which is still is still used in modern shows. When we saw them in 2016, War Machine was played, and with what they play in the background on the screen, it's 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 a pretty fucking awesome experience. Uh, the title track, Creatures of the Night, uh, that guitar intro. One time, I showed it to one of the guys I was working with at the HEB in Stephenville, and uh, when when we were in the back and we were listening to it, he goes. Man, that sounds like an '80s movie. Well, duh, no shit. Is the song came out in 1982, uh, but it's a good song. Uh, then we get other songs such as "I Love It Loud," which got a music video, which wasn't Kiss's first music video, but it was a rare thing for back in the day for Kiss to have a music video. Think about it. How many Kiss music videos have you seen? Was well, there a music video for Detroit Rock City? Is there a music video for uh, Rock and Roll All Night? Strutter, Deuce. No, there's not. So it's a big thing. They still do have some momentum. They're still kiss. They still do have some success, but they've just lost so much steam and it's just hard to recover. And with the new drummer, Eric, he does don his own makeup. He is not the cat man. He is the fox. So he only gets to have the makeup for this one album. And poor, poor Eric. He, he creates this character. He creates the fox makes an album, and then scrap it, boom, we're not wearing makeup anymore. So that brings us to the end of the makeup era for KISS. 1974 to 1982, KISS dons four faces, four different characters, the band reaches turmoil, skids, and loses a member and appears to be on the verge of losing a second in their lead guitarist, Ace Freely. And so we've told the story of the first eight years of this wonderful band. And folks, I'm going to need more time to continue to tell the rest of this story. And that's what we're going to do. This is going to be part one a quote-unquote history. I like that. I wish I could say that was original. wish I could say I came up with that, but I didn't. But so, we're going to pick up on this band during next week's episode in Kistory Part 2, the years after the makeup. Now, we know the makeup is going to come back on. Things are going to, old flings are, are going to come new again, and they're going to put the makeup back on. And we're going to get into that in the next episode. But folks, I really hope you've enjoyed I really hope you've enjoyed all this information. I feel like I've thrown a shit ton of info at you guys. And I've done my best of trying to be concise, straightforward, and keep it easy to listen to. But damn it, this is some of my favorite stuff to teach. I wish there was a class that I could teach about the history of of KISS and talk about this band. Jeez, I wouldn't have to work a day in my life if there was something like that. But folks, I really appreciate you guys being here. I hope you love the episode, and I hope you'll tune in next week as we finish and wrap up this story 
and finish telling the story of how Kiss did become this the greatest band in the world and easily one of the most recognizable bands. Guys, I just want to thank you for all of your support. I want to thank you for continuing to hit play. Uh, if you haven't already, go to the Facebook page, All Screws Loose, Thoughts Unhinged on Facebook. Give it a like. Give it a follow. Uh, we are doing a a drawing, and we're going to be giving away uh, an unopened copy of the vinyl record Destroyer. Uh, if you are local to the Abilene area, if your name is picked, uh, I will deliver it to you. If you're not local, guys, don't worry. You can still enter. If you win, I'll coordinate with you to get your information to ship to ship the, the prize to you guys. Uh, it's a small token of my appreciation for all the love and support you guys have given me. These last two weeks have been fucking awesome. Uh, I love sitting down at my desk and coming up with these ideas for these episodes and putting them on paper and then recording them for you guys. I love releasing them. I love the feedback. I love the reactions. I love how many of you guys have emailed me, messaged me, talked to me, called me, texted me. Guys, it literally almost bring me to tears. Some of the some of the things you guys have said to me, it means so much to me. So I love you guys. I can't wait to see you next week. Good luck. Good luck on the drawing. If you enter, folks, all you have to do is be following the page. Uh, it send me some sort of email or Facebook message that you want that you want to be entered into it. As I kind of discussed on the page yesterday, Facebook's being kind of kind of weird. It's not letting me view my complete list of followers. I think it has something to do with privacy settings that that different people have. But no matter, I'm gonna try my best to get everyone in it. Uh, but please, just to make sure that you can get your info in it, please reach out to me so I can put you on that list. And I am going to be doing the drawing on Tuesday night, March the 7th. We'll be going live on Facebook to do that. So guys, I hope you guys enjoyed my company for an hour and 45 minutes. I know I love being here talking about the greatest band in the world with you guys. And I can't wait to see you next week. Love you guys. See you later.